What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of Faith Unaltered. Today we have a very, very interesting conversation, I think, and one that I'm very excited about. Why Mitch Murphy left Protestant Protestant Christianity for Eastern Orthodoxy. And we've had, as you can see, we have Dale with us today. David is doing some Mother's Day things uh, with Tabitha and the family. And so it's just me and Dale and Mitch today, y'all. So this is going to be, I think, a good conversation, uh, kind of piggybacking on the conversation that we had yesterday uh, with the panel about orthodoxy. And so if you haven't saw that yet, uh, make sure you catch that. And we will also be uploading that to all of our podcasting platforms very, very soon. So sometime this weekend, whenever I have a free chance to do that, uh, it will get done. But Mitch, how are you doing, my friend? It is good to have you on since this is your first time uh, on Faith Unaltered. Why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, my friend? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Tyler. Really appreciate it. And Dale for coming along for the ride here. Um, yeah, man, my name's Mitch Murphy. I'm a Canadian. I'm a husband. I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, like, uh, so you want to just like, I can just give them a bit of a rundown of what's going on on my end or? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So, so basically, um, yeah, I grew up up here in Canada. I was raised in a Baptist church and I, I made the mistake of, um, sort of blaming that church for, um, for me falling away into sin. Cause I walked away from the faith as a, as a younger man. And, uh, I don't know, I think it's pretty classic to just, um, it's a bit of a meme to just sort of blame church hurt for leaving the faith and, and being gross. And so uh, trying to sort of like repent of that a little bit and just see that it was actually more of a heart condition than it was like that this church was so mean. Like uh, people are always like, oh, I was hurt by the church. And you ask them what happened. And they're like, well, they stopped me to they asked me to stop like sinning, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> and so that. Uh, yeah, That's basically. Horrible. I know it's a mean church. Right. And so. um yeah, I don't know. But I, yeah, anyway, I grew up and just sort of fell away from uh, theism and Christianity and fell into hedonism, agnosticism, and just sort of all that stuff, listening to Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, all those types of voices. I'm sure a lot of the viewers are familiar. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, anyway, just sort of my life just sort of took a real quick downward spiral. I figured out pretty quick that um, me trying to generate my own morality just wasn't going to cut it. I kept finding myself in these horrible situations, basically just hurting everybody around me. Um, anybody that came close to me was made worse. Essentially. Um, I started kind of realizing that like I'm building a principality with my life choices and it's, it's not, it's not to the glory realm. <laughs> it's to something else. And so, um, with the realization that, um, objective morality exists, that was kind of the big red pill for me. Um, I started searching, you know, like I read the Quran, I started reading into Eastern mysticism, I started looking for the truth everywhere that I could find it. Um, and I, it, I kept getting angry because it kept pointing back to the resurrection, it kept coming pointing back to the Bible, it kept pointing back to the resurrection. And I just after a certain point of trying to fight it, I just came to realize like that Jesus is who he said he was, he was the son of God, he did die, he did rise again. Um, and he did send his apostles to, uh, to build his church. And so um, eventually I came back to the faith and I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I had a friend of mine who was ministering to me at the time. And so I, I had this come to Jesus moment where, you know, as people say, I got saved. I felt God pull all this bad stuff out of me and, um, and then just started moving forward. And um, basically this was right around the time of the lockdowns. And there was one church that stayed open. They were very brave people. 
Um, it was called the Harvest Church in Kelowna. Very, very brave people, very wonderful people in there. And they stayed open and um, I started working with them. And we, we actually had like during services, the police would show up. They'd be banging on the door. Me and a group of guys, we had like earpieces in full on security. Oh, <laughs> detail, wow. And um, they just took the tickets. Very, very brave leadership at that church. Very wonderful people. Um, and so I got heavily involved with them and I just kind of figured these are the only people that were brave enough to stay open. Um, so this must be the remnant that I'm reading about. This must be, um, you know, the church that has, uh, has prevailed against the gates of hell. And, um, they were, they were basically like, a you know, like a non-denominational prophetic, uh, charismatic church. And, and again, just kind of like I was saying about the church I grew up in, the last thing I want to do is come on here and, and speak ill of them because they're, I'm still very close. I consider some of those people family and, um, they've done so much good work for the kingdom and in politics and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, um, but basically, and I promise I'll, I'll end my, my rant shortly here, but, um, <laughs> basically after the church is opened back up, um, I met, I met a girl who I, I, I planned on making my wife and I just started looking around and being like, okay, I got to get my theology right. Because this church that I'm in, they, um, you know, they're, they're very adamant that they believe in like, um, women pastors, stuff like that. They, you know, they're, they're, they love Israel. They're just like, they have these kind of viewpoints that I'm just sort of not totally in, in alignment with here. Like that, um, you know, more than happy to break bread with these people, more than happy to, um, you know, get involved and do these things. But as time went on, I just started realizing like, I got to find the truth. I got to find the way here and just sort of, um, figure out what's going on. And so I started uh, because I was very much into this mindset of like I'm I'm not religious I'm I'm a spiritual Christian I've I'm, mm-hmm. I relationship not religion mm-hmm. uh, and so that led me to this place of like why are we talking about this guy Paul all the time why are we talking about Peter all the time why are we reading like what these men wrote shouldn't we just be focusing on Jesus like what and then after learning um, you know a friend of mine named Austin Ferguson he sort of introduced me to this idea that Jesus gave this authority, this power to these apostles and that they would build a church. And that, um, if you look at, at history, um, there's really only two churches that have a right to, to claim that church. Basically, as, as far as I could tell, this is where Dale's starting to clench up here. (laughs) He was with me up till now. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, it's either Rome or it's, or it's Eastern Orthodox, you know, like it's not the Arians, it's not the Donatists, it's not, any of these other groups that popped up, like undeniably, it's it's not any of them. And so um, I started doing a ton of research. I read uh, the works of Eusebius. I started reading Church Fathers. And then um, my wife and I, we actually traveled. We we spent a month. We went through Rome, all through Italy. Then we went to Greece and um, oh, wow. saw. went up to a monastery, met a bunch of Orthodox monks and, and saw like the relics of, they had the finger bone of St. John the Baptist and uh, all types of crazy stuff. And it's basically led led me to believe that um, the Roman Catholic Church fell away. Um, like you know, the easiest point thing to point to would be 1054, the Great Schism, mm-hmm. and uh, Orthodoxy has remained mystical. They have remained the the true practice of Christianity because that really is the question. And I'll end it with this, which is just that: is there a a, a way to practice Christianity, or are we free to kind of make it up as as we go along? Mm-hmm. Just do just follow our own conscience, our own heart. Or did God lay out an actual path to salvation? And that's that's what I've come to believe is that the the true path to salvation is has been preserved through the Orthodox Church and um, all these other denominations, all these other churches. They have the seeds of truth, and so some fruit can grow out of that. But 
Uh, ultimately, in order to achieve salvation, you do have to be unified to the Orthodox Church. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that, Mitch. So let me back up um, just just a little bit. So you had said that uh, you came to the conclusion that only two two denominations had the basically the right to claim that they were the true church, right? How did you come to that conclusion that it was only two? What and and, and not only that, but why the Roman Catholic Church and why Eastern Orthodoxy and not some branch in Protestantism? Yeah. So that would just be. Um... Like there's so much to get into, but just to yeah. kind of boil, boil it down as much as I can. Um, historically, that's the best argument I would say is that um, basically J Jesus sent out his apostles and you can you can follow the churches that they built. There's there's um, Irenaeus in Antioch and then there's Clement of Rome in Rome. Um, and you can read the letters back and forth. You can see that there's one church there. You can see that Rome is is first in honor almost immediately. Um, and you can see that Jesus handed the, the keys to Peter and that um, there was authority passed on to the apostles. So basically you watch this church grow and it's just one big, badass, beautiful church. And then um, there's little breakaways from there, but, um, but yeah. And so that there's one church and then there's two. And then 500 years later, there's 30,000 de denominations or whatever. <laughs> right. I know that's not entirely true. It's a bit of a straw man, but you, you guys get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely more than two. We'll, we'll, I'll put it like that. Uh, right. within Protestantism, but okay, Dale, well, um, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just fo follow up. Um, okay, so that's kind of why you ruled out uh, Protestantism and that sort of thing. What about other forms of Christianity that are, in terms of the argument from pedigree, they're pr uh, perhaps provably even older than the Catholic or modern Orthodox, right? You have the Oriental Orthodox Coptic Church, you have the Church mm -hmm. of the East. Uh, did you look at any of these to rule these ones out as well, or...? Yeah, I looked a little bit. I did look a little bit, but I guess um, to me, like the the chain of apostolic succession is is quite clearly within these these two. Um, just from what I could tell, you know, I'm not claiming to be like a historian or a theologian or anything like that, but right. that's just how it appears to me, and that that seems like the general consensus as well. Um, like, because I don't, I don't know, like to believe that it's the church has been kind of like a fringe minority forever. Um, seems a little strange to me. Like you look at Constantine, you look at these different big moves that have happened. Um, I think you can see the Holy Spirit at work in these certain situations. Right on. Dale, any other uh, follow-up? Um, no, I, like at this point, we're just kind of getting to know like why he uh, yeah. believes, came to the beliefs that he had and that sort of thing. Right. Um, yeah, I'm looking at your list of questions. Um Okay, were were there any um, any other were there any challenges in your journey, kind of thing that you know doctrines that the Orthodox had that you you struggled with that you felt look there's not good evidence for this or I had to wrestle with it at all. Oh yeah, man. So my friend Austin, who was the one who introduced me to the idea, I went over to his house to visit, and I thought he joined some like pagan witch cult or something. He's got like pictures of Mary on the wall and he's got, he's burning incense and all this stuff. I'm like, you, what, when did you become like a religious freak, man? What's going on here? And I'm just like, I remember he's like, yeah, so we don't believe in sola fide. We, we pray to the dead. If a saint dies, we dig up his bones and use them to perform miracles. I'm like, dude, this is insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I can like, I, I would say it might be more helpful if you kind of pinpoint like some of the obvious ones, because like I had big problems with praying to the saints or 
the idea of saints in general and um, all basically all the basics you can imagine that a charismatic Christian would have. Um, so I'm happy to just sort of go off whatever uh, you feel more comfortable with. So I know Dale has voiced to me his, um, I wouldn't call them objections, right, Dale, because you're you're basically just inquiring about this concept. But so my, my thing is, um, how do you specifically right now, after um, being a catechumen, you're a catechumen in the Orthodox Church, how exactly do you view Mary? Is she more of like a co-redemptrix uh, type of person, or does she play like a little bit lesser of a role? Um, w- would you even use the term co-redemptrix uh, when even discussing Mary? Sorry, that's for Dale, right? No, no, I was asking you about how you viewed Mary. Um, Dale was inquiring of me. Uh, basically, one of his objections was that the East views uh, Mary as like this co-redemptrix type person, almost like right. the uh, Catholics do in a sense. But I was wondering how you viewed Mary uh, just personally. Yeah, yeah, th- that's a very good question. And um, I want to be careful because I don't want to sound like a Roman Catholic here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there are some similarities or some crossover. I would basically just say that, um, like, if you believe that Jesus is God, if you believe he's the, you know, what the <laughs> third person in the Godhead, then you, she by definition is the Theotokos. She is by de- definition, the mother of God. And so um, if you believe as I used to, that she's just a womb, she's just like a, a meat suit that that got that the father picked to to carry the child then like that's fine but um you know i believe that the blessed virgin mary is the mother of god and that god wouldn't have just picked any womb and tradition shows that she was uh that basically the the fulfillment of the ark of the covenant and that when she was very young i believe she was three years old her parents gave her to the synagogue to be raised as a servant of the Lord, basically. And once she was old enough to walk, she walked right into the Holy of Holies, which if you know much about the Old Testament, um, you'll know the significance of that. And that shows that um, in this new new time, with the as the mother of God being here, she is the Holy of Holies. Her womb, would be, she would be the God-bearer, just as God existed in the Holy of Holies prior, um, he would exist in her. And so that's that's kind of how I view her. So there's really a connection between like almost like the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, like Mary typifies uh, these objects in a very real way, right? Totally, totally. Okay. Fair enough. Okay, okay. So just to follow, so on the this Mary doctrine, I, I just want to kind of take a step back because I, obviously it, it is an objection of, of mine. I I think that potentially you guys are damned if you believe this because it's violating an essential doctrine as I see it. So the first thing, I just want to take it a step back and find out from you, like, okay, within orthodoxy, how do we identify whether a given doctrine is or is not an essential one? I don't, or are they all essential or something like, uh, how do we distinguish between like, there's room for disagreement here uh, or you have to believe this. And if you don't, off to hell kind of thing. Well, I, I find the accusation very interesting because I don't understand how what you just said could uh, coexist with sola fide, that if we have faith in Jesus, if we call upon the name of the Lord, um, but we have some problematic uh, practice over here, I don't understand how that could equal damnation. Um, so I'm a little confused on that, to be honest. I'm, I'm not sure where that comes from. Yep. Uh, so I'll, I'll explain that in, in a moment, like where I think that that doctrine kind of breaches something, but sure. I just wanted to kind of get from you, like how, how do we, okay. So I'll, so I'll start, like how, how would I determine whether a doctrine is essential or not? 
basically it, it's from the Bible. So if if the Bible ex either explicitly says something, so in the case of the resurrection, right? It, it's very clear. You don't believe that proposition, you're you're damned. You you're not saved. Um, or if it's something that's logically implied, right? So it, I could point to like something like in First John where it'll say, you know, those who love Jesus. And in this context, he's talking about heretics who are not right. Then you'll f obey his commandments. Mm -hmm. So by extension, that implies that hey, if I'm a practicing homosexual or something like that, because there's another verse that says. He commands us not to do that. Then, by extension, if I'm a practicing homosexual, then I can say it's implied I'm I'm going to hell. I'm damned. I'm not a saved Christian. So that's how my method of determining is something essential or not. Mm -hmm. um, so how does it work in orthodoxy, if you know? Well, yeah. So I guess uh, for us, like we, and I would also just like to have the caveat that I don't claim to speak for the Orthodox Church, just for the listeners, like, so everybody's sure. aware. I'm just a guy on the internet. So if you hear anything different Same. from a priest or anyone in clergy, um, please take their word over the crazy guy on the, on the <laughs> screen. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I would just say that we, we have like an actual institution to um, delineate for us. Like we have the church fathers is primarily basically the whole religion is built on the church fathers the councils and scripture that's kind of like the whole and the saints as well the lives of the saints so that's kind of how we how we go forward with it so like if i had a question like with with what you're asking like is this a damnable offense i could just ask my priest and he could explain it to me using that combination of um his authority as a priest and the councils and the lives of the saints and scripture so um, not to diminish scripture. It's obviously very important. It is, um, you know, it, it, it is God breathed, but, um, but yeah, is that, does that make sense? Is that, does that kind of answer your question? Uh, yeah, it does. And I think you're consistent. What, just one thing, just to follow up. So you're saying like your, your priest has the authority as well. I, I didn't know that the individual priests have it. I thought it was more like through the councils and, and this tradition or something, but for, for you, you're saying like your, your priest is inspired. He has the authority as well, or. Well, I can see where you're going with that. So it's, um, I'm not trying to say that the priest has the authority to, to say an infallible statement. Like if I, uh, if I come to my priest, it's not like what he says is God breathed. Um, however, he does have the authority to bind and loose, like with confession. Um, and he does have authority. It's, it's kind of like, if you can imagine like, um, where the police officer is in the chain of the legal system. It's like the police officer has authority, but the police officer can't just write a law and uh, he could do a false arrest. He could do these kinds of things, um, but the authority is there and, and it is to be followed basically. So it's almost like a hierarchy of authority, so to say. Correct. Yeah. Fair gotcha. Okay, cool. So, so now I'll do what I promise. So like, okay, so how does Mary fit into this? Why, why would I think that, this is potentially a damnable doctrine that you guys have. So in the first place, it, it my, the, I think that the Bible is clear that Jesus and Jesus alone merited our salvation. He atoned and for our sins alone, meaning no human or anything a human being did um, earns salvation in any way. Now, I understand that the Orthodox from, again, uh, maybe you're different, but from the Orthodox that I've spoken to, including Tyler, they'll say, well, look, dude, we, we believe the same. But when I've looked at the inspired sources themselves that I've been given, that I'm privy to, at least so far, and I don't know all of them, I'm not a theologian or an expert either. So, but the way it reads is it looks like you guys are affirming 
that through the role of the work of her giving birth to Jesus, this at least partially uh, to a lesser degree than Jesus, but it played a role to in meriting our redemption. And that if that's what you guys are teaching, then that would be damnable because it's violating this, the Bible's notion that no, only Jesus atoned for sins. So hopefully that makes sense. But yeah, well, I, like, again, I just, I can't really wrap my head around, like, especially given first Timothy two fifteen, where it says that women will be saved through childbearing. Like if with this like very staunch, uh, sola fide doctrine, I'm not sure how you can read a verse like that or like James, I think it's James two fifteen that, um, pretty clearly says Abraham was justified by his works. Like, um, I don't understand how you can cling to sola fide so hard when there are these apparent contradictions and, uh, not to say there are actual contradictions, just things that have to be worked out and, and interpreted and stuff like that. Um, because to reject sola fide doesn't mean that we're sola works a or, or whatever, <laughs> like doesn't just because we reject this doctrine doesn't mean that, that we believe that you can work your way into heaven. It just means right. that you can't, you cannot divorce the works from the salvation. And I know that Protestants like to, uh, you know, what I would just to throw a bit of an accusation out there, I would say that sure. Protestants are uh, a little bit subversive in their doctrine. Like they'll say okay. it's grace alone. But then when you push them on it, they go, but yeah, but grace is never alone. And, and you do need these works, but you don't actually need them. They don't contribute, but they will be there. And, and to me, I think it just, it, it makes way more sense to take the historic view of the church, which is that works are required for salvation. Like there it's faith without works is dead. I don't understand how you can read these verses and um, really cling to this sola fide thing. Okay, so so I I can understand what you're what you're saying. I I think in terms of like women being being saved through childbirth, uh, we can understand the context. That's that's not being literal, right? It's it's kind of saying like, look, the the seed will be going down through the ages through salvation history, and it will lead to Jesus who will save us for our sins. I think that's what that that verse is saying there. Sure. Um, now you raise an interesting point. So there's this Protestant doctrine um of sola fide right and it could be confusing because guess what uh it's it's not true that oh if you just have faith alone like in the strictest sense oh i put my trust in jesus alone uh no there are other requirements for example repentance and stuff like that you have to repent that that's a requirement if you don't is do that, that not a work though is is repentance a work I don't, so, so the answer is no, right? Like I wouldn't see these as works and that's why, that's what I think the Bible verses are including under faith, right? It's, you believe the proper propositions and it also includes repentance because obviously you're, you're trusting in Jesus for what? To save you from your sins, which presupposes you acknowledge your sins and you've repented from them. So I think that's how Protestants would kind of get around that. And that makes sense, right? Because it, it distinguishes, Paul kind of distinguishes works um, from these other things that go hand in hand with faith. So if you, yeah, if you look at all the scripture, rather than just picking out like one verse, then I, sure. I think you can get the full doctrine. Yeah, that's fair enough. So let me put it this way and just see if you agree with, with this uh, characterization. Would you say grace is something that you have or inherit and works are something that you do? Is grace something that you have, um, or you, sorry, inherit? 
Um, like, I think it's something that God gives to everybody. Uh, so I'm not a Calvinist or something like that. Like he, I, I think we were talking about that the other day, right? So the, the Holy Spirit plays this enabling role for us to use our free will to meet the conditions um, yeah. for receiving salvation. Right. So, so I'm getting at like, uh, you don't do grace, right? It's not a verb. Grace is not something that you do. Grace is something that you have, right? Yeah. Uh, it's something that you're given from God and stuff. Right. Okay. And so that's, and we, we both agree that that grace, God's grace is required for salvation, right? Yep. In, in the form of the Holy spirit and, and drawing you and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And, and we both also agree that repentance is something that you have to do and repentance is what's required for salvation. It's yeah, it's, it's a requirement for salvation, but it, it wouldn't be a work. Like Paul wouldn't define that as a work. I don't think, or the Bible doesn't think of that as a work. Per se. But it, it's, but I, I'm just trying to make the distinction here that grace is something that you have. Repentance okay. is something that you do. Therefore to say it's grace alone that I, to me, that just, it seems totally incoherent. It's, you have to do repentance. You have to have grace. So there, so to divorce the two and to say grace alone, um, see. I'm not I buying see what it. You're saying, yeah, no, I, okay. I, I totally get, get your, so, so you are right, right? Like there are certain conditions. I know. Repenting that, but, oh, you little bugger. I told <laughs> you he was fiery, bro. This is, I this told what happens you. when you have a <laughs> Canadian who drinks milk from a carton instead of a bag. Right? Oh, <laughs> the milk ad homs. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, welcome to Faith Unaltered. It's it's David Russell's fault. But, uh, um, okay, so to answer your, your question, right? So it's only Jesus um, that merits our salvation. Nothing, my repenting doesn't earn or merit anything right these are the conditions that human beings have to do to in order for jesus to give us that free gift of salvation or redemption right so i use an analogy kind of like okay so there's a father and he has a 16 year old son and he's like guess what before his 16th birthday he's like i'm gonna buy you a car uh if you get all a's on your next report card right so getting all the a's these are the conditions and he does it. He goes out, buys the car, right? In order to merit the car, you can't, like the 16-year-old couldn't go and say, well, see, I got all A's on my report card. The car dealership will get out of here. That that doesn't count. Uh, it's the money that buys it that the father pays. So that's kind of the father's analogous to Jesus. Yep. What he did on the cross earns it totally. But he sets certain conditions before he gives away that gift. Yeah, and that that totally makes sense to me. So, like, if the if the if if the child just basically smoked weed in the basement, you know, just like never did anything, uh, the father couldn't really justify giving him a car for free because he he didn't do anything to to deserve it. Um, so this is why I would say that uh, he justified the car to the child through the works of the child, which was that um, the child believed that he would give him the car and he acted as if he would give him the car. Therefore, he has justified the free gift through his his works and his his faith in the Father at the same time. That's that's why, like again, just to reiterate, like I think to say that uh, justification by faith alone is um is just kind of incoherent. It's it's like how could you justify giving your child a free car if all he's doing is like eating your food, smoking weed in the basement, punching holes in the drywall? There's no justification to give him a car. Um, so that's that's where I'm coming from. 
on the same token, Mitch, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we would say as well as Orthodox Christians that we don't merit our salvation either, right? Just course, because we yeah. repent and confess and do these things, that in no way, shape, or form is meriting our salvation. Is right. that fair? Okay. Absolutely, man, for sure. Yeah, because again, I'm not trying to say solo works, eh? I'm not trying to reform the Orthodox Church over here. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying you, you can't, you can't divorce these things, and um, you know, and I, I'm not, I'm also not trying to straw man the sola fide position either, because I, I do understand that the full quote is that Martin Luther said, uh, uh, it's justification by faith alone, but faith is never alone. That's that's what Luther said. Um, so I, I understand the intent behind that statement, but I think if you look at the fruit of where that statement has led us, um, I think you can see that his intent is is wholly irrelevant and um, does not matter. Because if you look at the state of the Protestant church, um, even if you're like a staunch Calvinist or a staunch Presbyterian or, or any of these like uh, more traditional um, denominations, you you do have unity with the United Church down the road that has, you know, like the, the transgender, like they, them uh, priest that's that's giving out communion. And it, you do have unity with these, these open heretics, even if you don't like it, even if you say, well, I read my Bible and I've come to believe that these people aren't saved and that they're heretics and that stuff like that's great. You're still in the same religion. You're, you're still unified as Protestants with them because it's just their interpretation versus yours and so to me i i I find way more peace being because and keep in mind where i'm coming from during the lockdown i toured with um with this church i was involved with we went all over canada when they started throwing pastors in jail we got in a tour bus and we went around and we did shows outside of legislature buildings and i was basically yelling at other churches into the microphone for like months and years at a time just but I, i came to realize that i was just a reformer reforming reformers and this is a 500 year old tradition that will never end because of this sola fide doctrine because of this sola scriptura doctrine it's you don't have to do anything to justify your salvation and you don't need anybody to interpret the bible for you so you can be you can be a unitarian you can be a a united church member you can be whatever you want and um, it's not working. It's really not working. And so I think for all of us, it, we all, most of us agree that it's time to return to more traditional values. Um, but instead of going more lowercase o orthodox we sh- and being more orthodox in that way, we should just actually go back to the first church and just be uppercase o orthodox. Like to me, that's, that's just what makes sense. Okay. Um, so I, I have three things to say, but two, two of the three are, are related to the justification thing, but you've kind sure. of moved. Do you, do you want me to just move past that to your next point or that whatever you like man i'm happy wherever you want to go with it okay cool so so my last my last point on the justification thing so so number one i i would agree with you that the from my understanding of the orthodox to the best of my ability um you guys don't teach that your works earn or merit um salvation However, the problem is that I think that you guys do teach that Mary's giving birth to Jesus does. So that's where we kind of started. That's that's where I think that's the damnable part of that doctrine about Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, I, on justification, even without you, even without you guys teaching that works uh, earn salvation you do teach that it is necessary for justification in a Protestant definition, forensic, legal, just to keep things straight. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, and that would be a problem. So like when I was asking Tyler about it, if we had an example, let's meet all those conditions. You're totally right. It's not, if you believe literally faith alone, that's not what the biblical view, there's more repentance, the 
whole bunch there's a bunch of stuff involved in that right willingness to obey but i think as soon as you do that at that moment you are legally justified in, in effect your name is written in the book of life from my understanding the orthodox would say nope hold on you've got to perform the works first then your name is put into the uh book of life then you're justified and that's a slight difference there um you know what's your thoughts on that yeah. So just to kind of stick to the Mary thing a little bit, because I think that it's very helpful is that um, if we were to go back to Genesis, uh, I think we would all agree that the works of Eve damned humanity or the works of Adam. How You know, I don't want to get too um, specific here, but you guys get it. The yeah. works of, of Eve damned humanity. Um, her like she she did something um, that that damned all of us. And so the, the Orthodox view is that um, Mary is the new Eve. Mary said yes to God. Mary um, did not sin, basically. Like I've heard a, a few different things about whether she was literally sinless or mostly sin or whatever. But um, basically, Mary said yes to God and um, bore God in her womb. And so if you want to call that a work, like in the sure, <laughs> I mean, I got no problem um, accepting that. I believe that she couldn't have done that work without also the grace and without the faith. And um, you know what I mean? But to me, that's that's just how we view it. It's Mary's the new Eve, and she was able to usher in the new covenant for us to be saved. And um, that's just that's just what it is. Let me ask you this, Mitch. Do you think there are some similarities? So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9.22, and this is just from the English Standard Version, he says this. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Do you think there's some similarities between the way the Orthodox says that Mary saves people and the way Paul said he saves people? Is there similarities there, or are we talking about two totally different things uh, whenever we discuss Mary and then whenever we reference 1 Corinthians 9.22? Oh, yeah. I think it's I think it's clear as day that you can can see it because it, it's like, I don't know, I um when I was kind of a heathen, I had a friend of mine who really went out of their way to, to minister to me and to bring me around to different churches and do these things. And I would feel super comfortable telling that person, hey, thank you. You saved me. Um, I would have no problem saying that to them because the, you know, we, we all know that when I say that it's Jesus Christ does the saving. Um, the, the saints don't do the saving. My friend didn't do the saving. Uh, Paul didn't do the saving. Mary didn't do the saving. Jesus Christ saves us. However, we do play an active role here. And, and I, I really do like, I know I'm kind of like uh, being maybe a little aggressive, but I really do understand the, the trepidation against um, the works because we can look historically at, um, you know, the things that the Catholic church was doing, like paying out, paying your way out of purgatory, these, these different things. Um, nobody wants a works-based salvation. Uh, nobody wants that, but we all know where that leads, especially when you throw authority into the mix. It's really a dangerous thing. However, um, I think it's just as dangerous to try to divorce works from salvation. And also, I think it's very dangerous to um, to create this, this new doctrine of salvation where it's something that has happened, past tense, um, whereas the Orthodox view is that salvation is something that happens every day. Uh, and like Paul said, you should, you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, to me, that makes way more sense. And that, and it also shows how Mary could save us, how Paul could save us, how my friend that I, I mentioned could save us. So, so that, okay. Uh, should I, Tyler, like, should I respond or move? Like, what do you want me to do with? 
so i mean i think we should i think we should wrap up uh the justification thing there's there's definitely more questions i want to get to before this hour and a half mark but dale i do want to give you a chance to respond yeah okay so one very quick response to tyler and uh to mitch i will say uh shame on dale bad on me because i am straw manning the that was an accidental straw man i would not call mary's giving birth a work that paul that's not the biblical understanding that paul would have there either but it's still it's fair man it's a way, better way of saying it she is earning through giving birth she is at least 10 percent earning salvation or atonement and that's where the problem is but tyler to your thing about Okay, yeah, the, you raised this excellent thing about Paul. He says he's helping to save people. Is he, I don't know, 5% or something like that? I, and I think in this case, this is where you have to look at what the doctrines teach. I don't think the Bible is meaning saves in that way. It's, it's meaning it in the way that, I mean, for going to say, I've helped save people because I ate a cookie today, right? Everything that happens goes into God's plan to save as many people as possible. So technically speaking, I ate a cookie that played a role in, in God's plan coming to fruition. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like butterfly flight. I'm a Molinist, so I don't know if you guys have different notes, uh, take on God's providence. But anyways, so I could easily argue the same thing there, right? Um, but with the doctrine of Mary, it's different. If you look at what the Orthodox things, the sources are saying, there's a different, there's a reason why Mary alone is is of this special nature right we don't have the same thing for paul or peter or anyone else so that's all my last response on that but right. yeah i wanted to turn to mitch because he break, brings up a great point about protestant look you have this sola scriptura notion and my goodness look at all the chaos that's uh arrived right you've got diff different interpretations and that sort of thing that results from that um so in the, in the first place I get that unity unity is a goal, um, but it's not necessarily always the top goal. We, we live in a fallen world, and I think that we have to sometimes make trade-offs. And I think that there's nothing wrong with differences of, differences of opinion as we work together to find out the truth, right? While we see through a glass darkly, we just have to admit that, yeah, there's, there's going to be different interpretations on things. Sometimes we can work it out. Sometimes we're going to have to wait to ask God and, and stuff like that. So, and the thing that I wanted to make here, my point for you, Mitch, is you guys have the exact same problem, right? Like you, you just have more, more revelation instead of stopping at the New Testament. Okay, great. You've got about seven councils that have helped solve some more issues. You've got some more divine revelation. But oops, there's different interpretations. Ask your priest first. I mean, on this show, we had different opinions from these Orthodox priests that we've had on. Um, so you have the same interpretation problem. It's just, okay, your yours your interpretation problem starts after 700, the seventh council, whereas mine is after the, the New Testament was formed. So we both have to live with some ambiguity and that's fine. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a fair criticism for sure, because there there is some some disagreement and uh, stuff like that. Obviously, political issues within orthodoxy and and all that kind of stuff. However, I guess I would just pinpoint um, what are we disagreeing about? Like, because for me as a Protestant, I would go to one church and they would tell me that uh, well, we baptize babies because they're born with original sin, and and if the baby dies before it's baptized, it's going straight to hell. And then you go to another one and they say, well baptism is only a, a public declaration of faith and 
you know, you go to these different things, there, there is disagreement about <laughs> like, even down to, you can go to like a Protestant uh, Unitarian church. Like you can go to all these different Protestant churches that are, are practicing entirely different religions. Um, whereas where you look at orthodoxy, um, yeah, there's some problems. And just like there was problems in the book of Acts, you know, like Peter was trying to make his congregation act like, Jew, act like a bunch of Jews and, um, uh, Paul wasn't having it. And so, uh, if you look at uh, like the Orthodox state of things, like I would just ask you, what are we, what are we disagreeing about? Because we have the seven councils, we have infallible doctrine on the Trinity and on baptism and on, on these different things on icons. Whereas, uh, if you go to Protestantism, you're basically arguing about the fundamentals of the Christian practice. Let me let me just jump in real quick, Mitch, and just ask you a clarifying question. So would you say that the seven ecumenical councils define fundamental uh, Orthodox practice? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's my understanding anyway. Um, again, I, I submit everything I say to the church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's the way I understand it too as well. So. Yeah, Bill. that in, in combination with the lives of the saints and, and scripture. Sure. Bill, do you, I thought you were going to say something. Oh, um, yeah. No, I was just, I was just going to say. Okay, so just to clarify, so you think that it's only Protestants who disagree about fundamental or essential doctrines that have different interpretations related to essential things? That's the difference, as you see it, or? Yes, I would. Say, I would say that. Um, and although, like, you might be able to pinpoint some very particular examples of like one Orthodox priest that's that's going off the rails and baptizing a, a gay couple's baby or something like that. Um, in general, I think if just looking at like, uh, even if you're just going to have a utilitarian utilitarian mindset of like which how things are functioning, um, I think quite quite clearly if you go to different Orthodox churches, they're, we're all practicing the same religion. And um, if you go to different Protestant churches, there's one that. Like, you know, the fundamentalist Baptist church where everybody's sitting quiet with a perfect posture and they're sitting That's there. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. um, and then you go to another one and they're they're speaking in tongues and casting demons out and waving flags around. And um, it's the same religion, uh, supposedly, whereas uh, the way like you go Orthodox, it's <laughs> like maybe they're singing different hymns or maybe they disagree about whether Mary had like a, an angry thought at one point or, or whatever. They, these are not um, fundamentals of the actual faith. Interesting. Yeah. It's so the, the only problem I see here is that there is kind of a presupposition in terms of you're assuming what's fundamental versus not. And you're kind of, in a sense, you're kind of looking back with your Orthodox lenses and saying, Sure, there are church fathers that disagreed on these issues and disagreed about the Trinity entirely uh, in the early period. There are councils. I mean, I, I've heard from Father Jonathan Ivanoff about councils that, oh, they're not ecumenical because they're disagreeing on the fundamental issues and stuff. But you guys are kind of looking back from this perspective of what well, we've we've just pro proclaimed almost arbitrarily, at least from an outsider perspective, at least, right? that these ones are the valid ones. And of course they all just happen to agree on this set of what we call fundamentals and any anything else we'll call those, those are not fundamentals. So it's not a big deal, but I mean, the Protestants can easily do that um, in the same way and stuff, right. Using the Bible, we could just say these, these disputes that you were talking about, about, you know, one person standing up versus sitting down proper, that's not enough fundamental. Who, who cares if there's disagreement on that? Well, 
I guess what I would, my response really just to kind of like cut through a lot of the, cause there, there's a lot we could like get lost in the weeds in on here, I guess to, to cut to the fundamentals of, of this disagreement, I would just say that there, there has never been any legal system in all of human history where the written law is all that was required to apply the law to a people, to a nation. There has never been a situation like that ever. There's there, like, you look at our, our court system, the way that we have it, there's written law there. You can look at the criminal code of, of Canada. Um, so there's the written law, but nobody is saying that like that law alone is enough for us to, to know how we're supposed to live our lives. Like we, we mm. need police officers, we need lawyers, we need judges, we need juries. We, we need ways to, uh, apply the law and yes sometimes people are arrested falsely there's false arrest sometimes people are convicted falsely however there's an authority structure put in place by god that has been used to apply the law and you know jesus never promised that the church would be perfect he never promised that it would uh be flawless or well (laughs) i don't want to go i don't want to say the wrong thing because of the spotless bride here you know what i mean but i'm just Mm -hmm. saying in in the way that the church applies to the fallen world um we've known since the very beginning that there would be issues but that there has to be a, a structure of hierarchy. And I would, you know, I would throw this to the Protestant and I would say that because most Protestants that I talk to say that we do believe in authority, just not infallible authority. And I would just say that, uh, would you agree with that, Dale? Is that how you would you would say it? Well, uh, to me, authority almost kind of implies inspiration um, and, and therefore in, infallibility in, in what they're te- the doctrines that they're teaching and stuff like that. So I, I would kind of tend to equate the two, um, but it depends how you're defining it. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously if by authorities, you just mean, look, this guy's got formal training and education, then yeah, that's, that's what a pastor is, or that's what a, a biblical scholar is. And I, I look to their authority, but I don't, just because you say it, I don't, I'm not going to believe it. I want to look at your reasons and assess for myself. Sure. So like, what, what are the councils to you? Like, where do you, uh, how do you view the councils? Um, so I, I view them, I don't even view them necessarily as authorities all the time, but I, I do recognize that they are people who have studied the Bible, definitely. They were literate, they had studying in the Bible, but they, they lacked a lot of things that modern scholars would have. They, they lacked objective criteria on which to base their judgments, for example. Um, and but still, I, I would respect their their opinions and listen to it. But I would be, what are your reasons? I'm not going to be, oh, you said it, therefore you're an authority, therefore it's true. Um, well, what yeah. about the Council of Jerusalem that's recorded in the Book of Acts? Now, what if you were at the Council of Jerusalem? Would you have said, well, you know, Peter, I I think you've got a good point. I can tell you've read your Bible, but I'm not really buying what you're saying. Like, how how would you have addressed that council? Like, would that be an infallible council, or or where? How do you view that? Yeah, so that so that's a good point. Tyler was uh, challenging me on that the other day, and I I admit I had to think about it, and I do think I would kind of agree with your orthodox position for that specific council that they were inspired, and the judgment they gave out, the letter, you know, no strangled meat, uh, whatever that that was um, infallible doctrine that was given out to the churches inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, through his apostles. Um, but just because that one is, that doesn't necessarily mean, okay, well, that's his model afterwards, because I I think that that's kind of disproven by the fact that, well, once the apostles started dying off, there was no ap- inspired apostolic uh, succession. 
they had to write things down and then that became our inspired authority but let me let me just jump in here but even you would agree dale i think with with uh, mitch and i that there were non-apostles for example luke uh that wrote down inspired scripture is that fair good point yeah true okay so there's authority so i guess where i would jump in on this conversation is that the difference i think between the orthodox position and the uh protestant position right is that we would see that authority and mitch you can jump in anytime here that i get off base but we would see that as being able to be transferred onto the people like for example that i brought up to you yesterday off of air uh with paul and timothy right paul tells timothy to find those who are capable of preaching and teaching these same doctrines that paul is handing down to timothy and with that he is giving timothy not only the authority to teach right well i guess i would stop there the, he is giving uh, timothy the authority to teach the things and to preserve them the way that paul was commissioned by jesus for example and and where that's where protestants would see no that authority isn't transferable so would that be the disagreement or the one of the main uh parts of this discussion where we would disagree at is the authority transferability um no so i think i would be okay. on your side uh at least prior to the new testament being written down and and put together and stuff like that towards the end of the first century but uh no i think biblical scholars like richard bockham confirm it right now it's different it's it's not the orthodox model of apostolic succession it is not formal again i'm probably getting the words wrong because it's been years since i've read his book but these are these are my terms of what i think he calls it right so they don't use formal controlled um uh, uh, preservation of the oral tradition between an apostle and then timothy or luke it is an informal controlled and this means the people have power to challenge uh their authorities they don't just oh well Timothy said it, therefore we believe it. No, they challenge this guy. They have their own apostolic traditions passed to all of them as a community, and they challenge uh, Timothy or something if he gets it, if he gets it wrong. That's that's the model. Paul's, uh, I mean, Paul gets a little pee peevish when they don't do that and they follow these heretical things, claiming authority from Jerusalem, and then sure. they teach the heresy, right? And they're supposed to say, "No, get out of here." That's that, not my Bible. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, they were even challenging Paul whenever he got it right, right? The Bereans, he said that he commended them for looking the things that Paul was telling him up in the scriptures, right? And they're like, oh, he, he got it right all along. So, True. so, go, so they, they were then, infallible yeah. in doing it. Sorry, Mitch, go ahead. Yeah, no, go that's ahead. okay. I would just say, like, um, at risk of, um, you know, arguing against a ghost, somebody who's not here, is that this is where I think the case against Roman Catholicism becomes very, very strong. Because, I mean, like... Uh, this is where Paul threatened to basically excommunicate Peter for, for what he was doing. And um, I think to, to assume that the entire religion could be built with one man as the high priest um, is, is really just wild. And there's no historical evidence for that, that it could have ever worked. Um, this is just where we can all kind of come together and just kick the Catholics while they're down, right? <laughs> Don't hurt me, Louis uh, Dizon. He's going to be on the show. He's going to be on the show in the future. I heard that. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, what, one thing I wanted to respond to, to you, Mitch, um, because you brought up an interesting point about uh, the common law, right? There's this need inherently, and there's never any um, 
like you know just the set of laws and then that's that's what governs kind of thing right well, i'm, I'm going to revoke your canadian citizenship because <laughs> quebec uh the french have a civil law code system which is literally you put the law they don't have any courts or a common law hmm. element to it so th there are even today systems that civil law code systems that that work um i would kind of lean on your side i think our side is better but um and maybe that's an argument you you want to adopt but yeah it, it does it does work and, and it's still around to this day and stuff in some jurisdictions so so in quebec if you if you murder your neighbor a, a policeman doesn't come pick you up or are you talking about just like for um like oh. civil civil disobedience like what how does this work so they're, they're not bound by judicial precedent of like prior cases like in our thing this provides some kind of stable role as to how how do we a judge interprets a law or you know like what there's the specific case in these circumstances how does this relate to the law like we we do that we deal with that through okay judges make a decision and then that's those decisions provide a binding precedent for all lower cases. oh i see what you're saying is okay um was that that had nothing to do with your point before or i, I thought um, i was being clever but <laughs> no you are you are sorry i just wasn't totally following um but i guess i would say there's still a judge right i mean True. There there's still there's still people involved in the process it's not just like one person with a criminal code in their hand and another person with a criminal code in your hand like pointing out different verses and you know there's still a structure that that is going to be required to uh to interpret and and True. Uh, enforce yeah, the law yeah. I, I would argue, though, I, I could argue that the trial by combat uh, system in the medieval period was much better with some people like a good old David Russell, you know, who didn't even show up today. Yeah, it would have been good. But he's today. watching. He's watching. I'm, I'm seeing him in the chats. He's watching this, but he's not here. So that's I'm not afraid of him. <laughs> um, well, if well, maybe I don't know how much more time we got, but um, why don't About we get into hour. this? Why don't we get into the saints? Dale, why don't you talk about your view of saints, praying to saints, praying to angels, uh, that kind of thing. If you guys are cool with that, that just because I... Bro, yeah. like, I love Mitch's mindset because him and I are on the same wavelength, right? Like, everything that you guys are getting ready to talk about, Dale and I talked about a little bit yesterday while we were off of air. So this <laughs> is... I'm interested to see where Dale's came in that 24 hours uh, since we had that discussion. So, yeah, go ahead. Prepared. Well, yeah, so... <laughs> This was another thing that I raised as a, like the veneration aspect and stuff as a potentially uh, damning doctrine of you guys uh, kind of thing. I'm not uh, as confident as I was uh, yesterday. So I need to do some research before I have like an inf a totally informed opinion on this, but just based on, from my understanding of where I was yesterday. Um, so I had a pro I do have a problem with it because I think that it is idolatry, um, right? So the reason I did that is because you're you're ascribing to thing you're you're basically doing things or serving, uh, you know, the word for veneration, serving and and stuff within a religious context. Things that should only be unique to the divine identity or one who has a divine nature. Um, so, for example, praying. You're praying to, no, you can only pray to God. Now, this is the thing Tyler kind of gave a, a good counter response on. So like, I need to rethink, possibly I need to rethink that aspect. But if if what you guys are saying is that all you're doing is, look, I you ask me to pray for you on, on your behalf to God, and there's no problem with that, uh, right? So that's all we're doing with these dead uh, saints up in heaven. 
Um, okay, well, that might avoid idolatry if true. I need to look that up if that's what the doctrine says. But let's suppose that's true. You're still consulting the dead. And I think that is unbiblical. So that's that's a sin. Even if it's not idolatry, it's the sin of necromancy or something like that. So that's why I would I would be against it. I, if it's the necromancy thing, I wouldn't necessarily damn you, but I would say you're you're sinning and please stop that. Um, well, please please don't anathematize me, Dale. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, to court first, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I, I I need to ask some clarifying questions because every Protestant has a different view of death that I talk to. What? what so you as a you know God. Holy Spirit-filled man that that trusts in Jesus Christ that will be saved. What happens to you when you die? Um, so physical death is basically death is separation if in a mm -hmm. biblical context. So physical death or biological death is separation of body and soul for human beings. Um, there's also spiritual death, right? So that's what hell is. That's separation between you and relational separation between you and God. So that's mm -hmm. what I think of as hell. And from my understanding, Orthodox are kind of on board on that, on that front, um, mostly, right? So yeah, so so basically the saints up in heaven, well, you could argue. But what happens to you? What what happens to you? Like my soul? Yeah. Yeah. Right now in the messianic era, I go up to heaven in a disembodied state, mm -hmm. and I'm in the presence of Jesus. And so when you're in the presence of Jesus, do you do you have any knowledge whatsoever of what's going on down on earth with your, your family and friends who are still alive? I think, so this is, again, we discussed this yesterday. I think we could. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that, that like, everyone necessarily is. Like, it's not like they're, oh, got out the binoculars, let's see what's going on. But I think they could initiate it where, okay, hey, you know, I want to check out what, Dale's been up to doing today and stuff. So, okay, they mm -hmm. can look down and see, but they're not at my behest. They can't hear my prayers or st something like that just by me beseeching them and stuff like, yeah. Okay. Well, just to shift gears a little bit and, uh, and I promise I'm staying on topic. I'm not um, no, no changing something new. Uh, do you, do you believe that the devil watches the Grammys, Dale? That the devil watches the Grammys. <laughs> I uh, just, he, I, I think he I've never heard that show. question. That's good. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Like the, the devil is not omnipresent. Sure. Um, again, I, so I think he could, like, I don't, mm -hmm. as far as I know, there's nothing against it, but it, if you're trying to say like, Oh, well, is, is he everywhere present or something? No, he, he's not. No. Uh, so, sorry. I'm, I'm just operating on the assumption that like, we all agree that like the Sam Smith, thing that he did at the Grammys that that's a satanic ritual done on TV for, for the whole world to see. Like um, if you, even if you don't believe that, maybe just grant me that for this analogy. All right. So if that's what's going on, does, does the devil watch or do the demons see that? Does the devil see that? Yeah. So, I, so I think that there are certain things that occur where Satan is not present. Right. So with occultic um, rituals, it, it could be Satan there, or it mm -hmm. could be one of his demons. But Satan doesn't have to be present every time a sinful act is, sure. is committed. But I guess what I'm getting at is that, like, um, the devil, or at the very least, the the demons. Um, so the demons can hear our prayers, but the angels can't. I'm just wondering, like, if um, how you can square this away. 
the demons can hear our prayers. So, um, like, I'm talking. I'm talking about if you're if you're a satanic nut job like uh, Sam Smith or any of these people. Um, like in your view, the the demons are playing an active role here on Earth. The demons hear you. The demons see you. Um, but but the angels don't. I'm just trying to clarify kind of what your position on this. Yeah. I okay. I see your point. That's uh, okay. I never thought about that before. So that's interesting because I was going to say like, well, they, they can only hear you because they're present and stuff, but obviously no, some people are doing the rituals to invoke them from, from elsewhere. Um, uh, so how does that relate to angels? Um, I, I don't think that the fact that demons can be invoked from elsewhere through sinful rituals doesn't necessarily imply that, oh, well, there has to be the opposite on the other side that we have to have our good rituals to in invoke an angel necessarily. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think, uh, yeah. yeah so I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to point to this, this, um, what I believe is an inconsistency in your worldview, which is that, uh, the demons are, are here playing an active role, trying to uh, get us into hell basically. And so is Lucifer. So are his demons. Um, but somehow like praying like that the angels and the saints are playing no active role. Like, I guess I would just, I would just ask you like um, if praying to angels is sinful, um, like why, why do we see in Jacob's ladder? Why do we see them going back and forth? And if, and if um, praying to the saints is, is necromancy or something like that, I would just ask you like, do you believe that they're just dead? I'm just trying to like, I'm sorry for if I'm kind of conflating no, no too problem. much here, but they're, um, they're spiritually alive, but physically dead, right? They, mm -hmm. they don't have a body. Um, they're not going to be alive, truly alive again until the resurrection day. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I think we need all the help we can get. I think the demons are here and they're, they're trying to drag us all down to hell. And I think that um, so are the angels and that to call on an angel for help is completely appropriate because God absolutely has used his angels all the time. Like I, something I hear from Protestants a lot is why would you only pray? Why, why, why wouldn't you only pray to God? Why wouldn't, why would you pray to an angel? Why would you pray to a saint? Why would you do these things? And I would, I would just throw back and I'd say, well, why did an angel tell Mary that she would bear God in her womb? Why didn't God just tell her? Why did, why did Moses split the Red Sea? Why didn't God just do it? Why? Like you could yeah. go over and over and over again. God uses his servants um, here on earth. And so to well, me, it just makes perfect sense. I, I think you bring up an excellent point, right? So it could be that angels are active they, and they do serve roles as messengers um, of God all the time, right? So because I'm pointing out an asymmetry, that isn't an inconsistency necessarily, right? So, okay, demons are active and here's a, meth here's a method that works to invoke them and make them active or something, right? And we're warned against it. Okay, well, how do we activate the angels? I think God wants us always to be mindful of that it's him that's responsible, the angel, not worshiping an angel, not ascribing to them the worth that God is. So we pray to God and he can activate an angel to do, show up to Daniel and give his message or show up to Mary and give the message or something like that. So like there's an asymmetry there, but that that isn't an inconsistency, at least necessarily. Right. And I'm just making sure. this all up because I have no idea how to I don't even know if angels well, are active in the. the yeah, yeah. Well, this. This is where I think the doctrine of theosis really piles it all together. It, it really makes it all clear and it all makes sense is because with, with the idea of be, behind theosis, that, that any of us can participate in the divine nature, that any of us can share a will with, with Christ, um, 
it, it makes perfect sense that that would be even more so the case after death. Because we, we basically believe that the saints are made more alive in death, that they're more alive right now than they were when they had their bodies here because they're upstairs actively participating in the divine nature. They want the same things as God. They think the same way God does. They, they act as God does. I'm not, and I'm not trying to conflate the, any of these souls to be God, but I'm just saying that's kind of the whole point of a Christian is, is to uh, participate in the divine nature. That's, that's like the so whole this, thing. So this wording, so I, I'm going to admit, I, I was talking to David Russell last night about this. He's Protestant. And he brought this up. It is very concerning because I've heard this, but I have to admit, I don't understand the nuance of this doctrine, but participate in the divine nature. What on God's green earth are you talking about? What what, what does that mean? Because that does sound very wrong, like I, almost like idolatry. Like, or, yeah, yeah. It's not literal, correct? Like, what, what do you guys mean by that? Because I've never heard of theosis or, or this doctrine before. Well, I guess I would ask, what what do you think happens when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, as as it talks about in the Bible? What what does that mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? So I think that it uh, it sanctifies our souls and it plays the role of redeeming us and conforming our character to be more and more like Christ. Um, mm. In no way does this mean ontologically I'm taking on divine, you know essential divine properties to because ba- when you say divine nature what is that as a philosopher i think well it's a set of properties the properties that are essential and demarcate a divine kind of being human beings cannot acquire any of those even with the holy spirit i i will never acquire the set of essential properties that are non-communicable and unique to god are you talking uh, about like omniscience dill omnipotence things like that Sure. Or, or eternality. Um, I don't think that we are inherently in, eternal. Only God is, right? We are sustained eternally. But if he stops that, we'll be dead immediately mm. uh, or stop existing. Um, so uh, the property of being tri-personal. No human being will ever ever acquire, acquire that, uh, that property. That's uniquely God's kind of thing, right? So mm-hmm. stuff like that is, is we can never... When you say participate, I'm hearing, oh, Plato, you know, Greek philosophy, participating in the forms, but instead of the forms, these abstract forms, you've got God or something. So it's it's weird. I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. So so I would just say it's it's like, a, and I understand like the, the concern with the language because I had the same thing, but um, it's it like, I, I'm going to try to explain it using more Protestant language. Um, it, so it's like when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, when you're when you're saved and the spirit come, comes into you. Um, at that point, you are now operating as a mini Christ. It doesn't mean that you are God, doesn't mean you are Christ, but you have Christ in you. And so when like when you love your neighbor, um, it's not you you're not just conjuring up this love for your neighbor out of thin air. you're you're participating in the love for your neighbor that God has. So it's it's God's will operating through you and you are actively loving loving your neighbor. You didn't do that. you just you let the Holy Spirit in and operate through you so that's that's basically theosis that's essentially what it is that's why in in all the iconography you'll see the ring it's like a halo Mm -hmm. around their heads that's that's the um the divine nature that's that's what it is that's the saints actively participating in theosis so let me let me ask i'll just say this and then i'll give it to you tyler but i'm agreeing with him i'm I'm just saying like look the way you've described it uh, again i don't like 
it's semantics. I don't like the word participates in the divine nature, but that's a semantical thing. The way you've defined it. And yeah, uh, basically we are being conformed to being image bearers of God. Cool. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, not in, you know, not only that, I think it goes even a little beyond that, right? Because we're image bearers of God right now, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, theosis and, you know, uh, Mitch, you know, jump in again and correct me if I'm wrong, but it would be more of a nuance, right? Where we would affirm that we are becoming more like Christ in the sense of his characteristics. Um, the way he functioned here on earth, right, is I think one of the same if not more so, right? Because we got to keep in mind, John says, we don't know exactly what we will be like. We just know we are going to be like him, right? More so than what we are now. And so I would nuance it between becoming like Christ versus the Mormon you know, doctrine of becoming Christ or becoming yeah. God, right? Yeah. We would deny that uh, all cool. in all. We don't, you know, we're not eternal. We can't be eternal by definition, right? We had a beginning point. God does not. And so it's just characteristics like that that I think, you know, will improve in our lives and, you know, we will be more like him uh, when he appears, even if we don't understand exactly what that means just yet. So Mitch, would you agree with that or? A hundred percent. And I think just to piggyback on that a little bit, you can really see why the lives of the saints uh, are so important is because um, Jesus Christ would have, if he had been born hypothetically in the 1960s, he would have lived a different life than he lived. I mean, in, in one sense anyway, right? Like he would have still been perfect, but perfection in the 1960s would look different depending on where he was born and, and what was going on. Um, perfection would, would play out differently. And so this is where um, if you believe in this idea that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and participate with the divine nature, then looking at the lives of the saints, um, not to say that these, these men and women live perfect lives, but um, much closer to it than the rest of us. <laughs> they, they've participated in um, long bouts of theosis. And so you can watch their life and, and see Christ in them. You can see Christ's words coming out of their mouth and, and acting through their actions. And cool. it's, it's really powerful when you read into the, uh, how a lot of them live. Yeah. The, I, like I said, I, t I totally agree with you guys. Uh, I would maybe just say like, yeah, obviously our fallen nature that's become ingrained in human nature and fallen man and stuff. That's a, we're a distorted image, right? And the Holy Spirit fixes that that out. But yeah, I think we're all on the same page. One one thing where we would disagree is that, okay, I noticed that when you're talking about the saints, you're talking about these special class of people. No, I'm a saint. You're a saint. Every believer is a saint from the Protestant view. But, you know, that's just like a minor, uh, minor thing. But I, I do think that the Bible is clear that we are all saints. If you If you're saved, you're a saint. Yeah, but I guess, I guess that's just a difference in the definition of salvation. Like, um, we don't believe that we are saved past tense. We believe that we are participating in our salvation and, and working through our salvation. And um, yeah, it's just like, I don't know, I find I find that view very sad. It, just, it makes the religion kind of stale, in, in my opinion, because it's... Um, it's it's so much more than that like this participating in in the religion of christianity i believe it's like um i don't believe that there's just like this one moment and then what well, now you're just waiting to die like because i you got saved um i believe that we're we're supposed to have an active role here in participating with our salvation and um yeah uh, i'm gonna disappoint you again because i totally agree well well said right so, uh I, I screwed up in my so justification from a pro that's past tense that that is one moment right that's just a legal forensic thing from the protestant perspective 
But there's also the Protestants believe in the sanctification process, right? So salvation involves that entire process and, and stuff, right? So we do continue to grow and become more and more conformed. No, it's not just, oh, well, I've been legal, forensically uh, justified, so cool, I, I'm just going to wait to die or I'm going to do whatever I want. No, you've got to be doing the works at that point and and growing and stuff in Christ. So could could one person be more sanctified than another person? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. I think we'll call them more... sanks. <laughs> we'll call them... Well, we'll call it how, well, how, well, the Bible, the Bible calls everyone who's justified saints. So that's the, the Bible's terminology, I would argue. But here's the term. I would say you and Tyler are definitely of the more sanctified class than I am. So. Oh, I don't know. Oh, about that, Dale. Yeah, I don't know about that either. You don't Speaking know where I've been, Dale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's, uh, so we've got about 15 minutes left for me anyway. You guys are more than welcome to keep going because I mean, I, I could have just, you know, ran off about an hour ago and and did my thing while you guys chit chat. So I, I love the conversation. And I think what we're getting here, you know, I titled this video, why Mitch left Protestant Christianity, Christianity for Orthodox. And I think we're getting this, you know, in depth, um, practical way of what you did, Mitch, exactly to, to really, you know, question these things. So I'm seeing, you know, the differences in, um, what does Protestant Christianity teach? What does Orthodox Christianity teach? And really diving into these things. I mean, the thing, the questions that you've brought up to Dell, for example, they are the thoughts, the thought patterns that you went through as you were, you know, studying this. And so, what I wanted to do, um, we got a couple audience questions, and I I felt bad for not getting to the audience questions on yesterday's show. So I definitely want to get to these before I have to bounce. And like I said, you guys are more than willing to to keep going after I have to leave. Uh, so the first question we have here is from uh, the Vulture. And he asked, uh, my question, does he, so Mitch, do you believe someone must be Orthodox to be saved? It's such a good question. Um, and I think it's a, it's also kind of a dangerous question because of, um, yeah. how you define saved. But, um, I think the best answer I can give you is from St. Theophan the recluse. He says, uh, you ask, will the heterodox be saved? So heterodox, that's meaning Protestant, Roman Catholic, anybody, anybody else, basically. Um, why do you worry about them? They have a savior who desires the salvation of every human being. He will take care of them. You and I should not be burdened with such a concern. Study yourself and your own sins. So that's, um, that's from one of our saints. I thought he put it really well. Um, I do believe, and this is something like, um, my wife gets upset with me because it sounds so harsh when I say it, but I always make a point of, of saying the truth, which is that there's no salvation outside the church. That's, that's the Orthodox doctrine. That's what we believe. There is no salvation outside the church. Um, but then I think a nice caveat is pointing out that like, you can't really see it, but on our, our, the Orthodox cross, the little piece on the bottom signifies the thief on the cross going to heaven and the other thief going to hell. Um, because the thief on the cross was, was not baptized, didn't go through any of the, you know, the things that we're supposed to as, as Orthodox and he still went to heaven. Um, and so it's important to recognize that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is the one who does the, um, the ultimate judgment at the end. And so it's up to him. And, um, you know, Jesus, like, uh, we believe that Jesus Christ basically metaphysically unified the thief on the cross to the church. Um, and I think that even Protestants uh, believe that there's no salvation outside their church. That's why um, any Protestant I talk to will claim that a Mormon is not saved, even though they don't, it's, they don't, they have kind of have an arbitrary 
um, delineation of, of who's in the church and who's not. It's, it's an invisible church, whereas we have a visible church. If you're not in the church, you're not participating in salvation because um, only the true Jesus Christ, only the true body of Christ uh, can save you. So, can I, Just a quick follow-up question. Um, it's, it's related to what you were just saying. Thank you for just giving a straight-up answer on that. But one of our hosts, David Russell, he's Protestant as well. One of his major issues... Um, and it, there's kind of an emotional element here too, right? But it's it's kind of like, look, you you guys, well, you wouldn't know him, but like I'm sure Tyler, for example, would admit, look, me and uh, David, we are saved. We do have the Holy Spirit indwelling in our in our hearts and that sort of thing. But at the same time, when it comes to the Eucharist, because of our different understanding of what that means, uh, it's not the literal body and blood. In the first place, would you guys exclude Protestants from that? And if you are, if you do do that, isn't that kind of like saying you're kind of denying that, look, they don't really have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them? Yeah, I think, again, it's it's just important to lean on the fact that it's um, it's up to Jesus Christ. It's not up to me. It's not even up to my priest, really. Um, but with that being said, um, we, we do believe that he the heterodox are not in the church. They're, they're not participating in the church. And it sounds, it sounds really mean. Um, <laughs> like people get upset about it, but, uh, but again, I just, I try to throw it back and just say like, uh, you know, throughout, throughout history that the Christian doctrine has not been nice. Like God was just God of the Israelites in the old Testament. Um, while the pagan nations, they all had their gods too. They all had different ways of doing things. And I, sorry, I'm not trying to compare a Protestant to a pagan here. I'm just making the distinction that, um, that, yeah, there was just the church in the old Testament. And then in the new Testament, uh, we believe it's, it's just the same. There's just the church and, um, you know, may God have mercy on the heterodox and may God have Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me, a sinner as well. That's just kind of what it is. It all boils down to, um, Cool. you know appealing I mean, to the to mercy keep, of christ to keep in mind too just to piggyback on what mitch said because i i, I think i agree with it exactly um but you know orthodox aren't the only ones that keep communion uh from you know people that aren't members in their parish or church right lutherans do the exact same thing and so there is protestants that would practice that same um that same ritual i guess i i could call it or that same uh sacrament and because i think lutherans uh, do affirm the Eucharist as a sacrament, uh, something that bestows grace, right? But mm -hmm. but the point is I'm trying to make is that it's not like the Orthodox are the only ones that's withholding communion from anybody. Uh, I think it gave a good you know definition, or not really a definition, but an explanation on the last show uh, that we did. You know, it. I agree with Mitch. It's not for us to judge who's in and who's out, right? What what can we say without a shadow of a doubt, right? Well, we can say who's in the church and who's outside of the church, right? But again, I, I agree with him 100% uh, that it's not for us to say who is saved. And so I wouldn't want anyone, I would withhold communion from anyone if I thought that they were uh, drinking and eating this unto their own condemnation, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that Paul preaches. This is something that Paul warns about over and over again in Corinthians don't do this, you know, and, and for us to be extremely careful uh, in participating in the Eucharist, um, because it's something that's not to be taken lightly. So that's the way I would answer that question as well. Yeah. And it's, it's actually a very like merciful thing to, to withhold it. Like you're better mm -hmm. off not if, because <laughs> like you bring up Paul, Paul says like you eat and drink damnation unto yourself. 
So um, like I've talked to people who go to Baptist churches and they, they believe they believe in the true presence of the Eucharist because it's clearly written in the Bible. And um, I actually really upset a good friend of mine. Shout out to the uh, Theologia chat there. But uh, I upset a friend of mine because he was affirming the true presence in, in their communion. And he's, he's in a Baptist church. And I was saying, well, does your pastor believe that? And he goes, no, he believes it's, um, it's metaphorical. And, and I go, well, does your congregation believe that? And they, he goes, well, most of them believe it's, it's just in memory of Jesus. And I, I said, dude, like, first of all, I think you're wrong. I don't think the true presence is in your communion. But assuming you're correct, then you are taking in the, the, the body and blood of Christ. Uh, but everybody else in your church, including the pastor, are eating and drinking damnation unto themselves. Like, this is, this is your worldview here and so and i've talked to a few different um baptists who believe this kind of thing and like to to this is again where it's a so-called secondary issue that that is extremely vital it's extremely important so gotcha cool yeah thank thank you guys for answering that so tyler i think you got two questions left or in the audience no let's see so i'm in my start so yeah so luke thomas asks um well, more, yeah, this, this is a question. So calling on Jesus would be more powerful. So this is talking about whenever we were talking about prayers to the saints, this, that, and the other. So why the need for prayer to an angel? And I'm going to dot, dot, dot that and say, or a saint, right? So sure. why, why do we need? And I guess the way I would answer that first and foremost is if I'm going to be consistent. So say I do uh, have this uh, understanding of prayer, right? We're calling on Jesus is more powerful. I don't, I don't know what that means exactly, but, but forget that for right now, um, then I wouldn't, you know, ask my wife to pray for me. I wouldn't ask Dale to pray for me, which I do on many, many occasions. Uh, I don't ask David. I wouldn't ask anybody. I would just go straight to God. I think because practically I do ask others to intercede on my behalf. There is one mediator between man and God. That's Lord, uh, the man, Christ Jesus. Right. But there's many, many intercessors. Uh, we see this in the, in the Old Testament, uh, Moses on behalf of uh, Israel, uh, Abimel or uh, uh, Abraham on behalf of Abimelech, right? We see many times the saints interceding uh, to God on behalf of people. And so I just try to be consistent with what the Old Testament teaches. And like Mitch said a while ago, I think the more prayers that get lifted up to God on behalf, this is why I'm asking so many pre people to pray for my wife's pregnancy right now, right? Let Help us to bring this child into the world safely and have another beautiful little boy or, or another beautiful little girl. Um, but I think prayer works. And I think the more prayers we offer up to God uh, on behalf of each other, right? Not only does the Bible call us to do this, but I, I really think that it um, it does something. You know, whatever that is, I think that we are more likely, so to say, um, to get those things that we pray for uh, when we ask versus when we don't. And so I'm not a determinist. Uh, by any stretch. And I don't even think determinists would say uh, they, they, you know, they hold to prayer as well. It, it works. There's, there's efficacy in prayer. And so that's, but that would be my answer. But Mitch, how would you, uh, how would you respond? Well, yeah, I would just say like the whole question is kind of predicated on uh, the idea that, um, well, you know what? No, sorry. I'll address the angels thing. Cause uh, I know you added on the, the saints. I would yeah, just yeah. say like, um, the angels are playing an active role. Like why, why did God send angels to go into Sodom and Gomorrah? Why, when, um, like, why would, I hope I'm not misquoting here, but, uh, why did Jesus say that he could, uh, call upon legions of angels? Like, why wouldn't he just do it himself? I think it's, it clearly shows that the angels 
play an active role here. Um, and I know this is like extra canonical, but if you look at the book of Enoch, if you look at uh, even, you don't even have to go there, but I'm just saying that the angels are playing an active role. Um, and to think that like, if an angel was in the room with you and you're supposed to just like look away and just talk to God is, is just kind of like schizophrenic and insane. I think um, talking to angels is um, perfectly reasonable, perfectly, perfectly reasonable. Yeah, and not just to add to that real quick, uh, Louis Dazon, the person that we are going to have on very, very soon, he did a um, he did a video with uh, Holy Smokes, um, I think the YouTube channel is called, and he laid out a really, really good case for intercession of the saints um, in uh, in early Judaism, so especially Second Temple Judaism. Uh, he did a really good video on that, and so I would recommend that to anybody. I'll put that in the description. Uh, guys, I have to run, but... But Luke Thomas asked another question that I want to answer uh, just real quick. If time permits, I have a question for Tyler, and I'm going to extend this to both of you guys as well. Um, and uh, so he says, if you personally were to die today, will you go to heaven? Yes or no? Yes. Straight up. No, I, I just let me be presumptuous there. No. So my, the way I would answer this is, it, will I go to heaven? I don't know. I, I, I genuinely don't know. Uh, again, I, if I'm going to be consistent with what I said earlier, I've got to be consistent here, right? It's not our call. Judgment is in the hands of God and God alone, right? I've did many, many things. We all have done many, many things uh, that will be um, brought up, I think, to us and that we could be condemned for, right? We've all sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Now, let me nuance this a little bit. What does also the Bible say? The Bible says that those, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever pissed us, right? Whoever trusts him, whoever believes in him will be saved. Do I believe God's promises? Absolutely. Do I believe that the faith, that the saving faith, as Protestants would call it, leads to good works? And I can point to places in my life where I believe that those works or that that faith has blossomed into good works. You better believe it right? Again, that would be, I guess that would be the way I would answer that, is that, you know, if God asked me, Tyler, why should I let you into my kingdom? Because I've brought this up to many people before, right? My answer would be because I trust you. And I think I showed that in my works. If that's not good enough, then okay. Like, who am I to argue with God? So Mitch, how would you answer that question? Um, yeah, I would just kind of like, uh, throw it back around to the person asking the question to, to Luke. I would say, what? Who are you to to know? <laughs> like, because I don't know. I find a lot of Protestants are very offended at the fact that we will make the claim that there's no salvation outside the church. But I'm personally offended when I hear people say that. Well, I have faith in God, so I know I'm going to heaven. Like, I don't know, man. If Jesus came through the clouds right now, I wouldn't just throw my arms out and go like, "Wow, I, I'm so glad you came. I can't wait to go up." I'd have my face in the dirt. And I would go, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I would mm -hmm. not have this, this presumption that God owes me eternal life because I said the magic words. Like, I, I think that's insane. I think there's, um, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to be mean here, but um, <laughs> I think. Well, especially think if we uh, get off of the subject of merit, right? We haven't yeah. done anything to merit our salvation. Yeah. And so right on. Dale, uh, I'll let you answer that question as well. And then I, guys, I've got to run. Uh, it is past that 230 mark. And okay. so you guys are more than welcome to keep going though, but I do want to hear well, your answer, Dale. Yeah, I think there's there is only one question 
left again from Luke Thomas type deal. So if you want me, so this is an interesting one, right? So he's saying if uh question for Mitch, if the Orthodox church merges with the Roman Catholic church, which has happened uh, through, because I'm an ex, uh, amateur expert in the Shroud of Turin. So I know at certain points there have been times when a merge was almost possible. Um, so let's say that happens. Would you continue to submit to them as your guide and authority, or would that be basically a falsification because you've got all these problems with the, the Catholic Church? Well, yeah, I think the question shows a misunderstanding of the, the structure of the Orthodox Church. So, um, and it's also an important dis difference that we have between like us and the Roman Catholics. So basically like if um, like an, a good example of this is like Bartholomew, the patriarch of um, Constantinople. Um, if he also thanks so much, Tyler, for uh, for hosting us. Really appreciate you, man. Um, so if Bartholomew decides that him and the Ukrainian church or whatever, that they are going to unify with with Roman Catholicism, say I'm baptized into um, that that nation that national um that ethnic orthodox church so like bartholomew is my top patriarch i uh, i am well within my rights to leave the jurisdiction of that bishop and go to say like a rokor uh russian orthodox church and be under that authority um whereas with the roman catholics like if the roman catholic merged with bartholomew and a an individual roman catholic doesn't like it um too bad you kiss the ring like you have to submit to the pope no matter what. And that's, that's an important distinction is that the, the clergy is not supposed, is not called to be just like mindless robots in, in going to church every Sunday. We're called to have an active role in the body of Christ. And that if we have, uh, if we have a clergyman who's, who's doing something wrong, like if they're, they're pushing ecumenism or uh, they're doing passports or they're, they're trying to merge with Rome, we're well within our right to vote with our feet and go to a different jurisdiction because we, we have an actual foundation, which is the, the church fathers, the councils, the lives of the saints, and scripture um, to actually base our decisions on. So um, the answer is no, I, I would not, because um, I didn't become orthodox to go back to Rome. I don't think anybody becomes orthodox so that they can go back to Rome. <laughs> All right, awesome. All right, cool. So yeah, that does it for the audience questions kind of thing. Um, up to you as you're the guest. Is there is there any other topics that we we missed or didn't want to talk about or are you pretty happy with what we covered in today's show? Yeah, man. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I really appreciate you, Dale, and for kind of holding my feet to the fire and really grateful to, to Tyler as well. I thought it was a lot of fun and um, I thought it went really well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and giving me stuff to think about and challenging my worldview as well. So, yeah, uh, I think it was a great show. Um, just so the audience knows what we have. Coming up next week. Oh, okay. So next week we've got a couple of shows. So one, um, we'll be having Warren McGrew on to talk about his debate on total depravity with Dan Chapa, who we had on last week. Uh, so we're going to be following up with Warren and getting his perspective this time. Um, and then on Thursday, we have a Shroud panel review show. So we're going to be looking at the claim that there are Pontius Pilate coins on the Shroud Man's eyes um, that date between 29 and 32 AD, as well as looking at the pollen and limestone dust studies that have been done. Uh, and then finally, Friday, we have, uh, great, you know, you've had to put up with the Orthodox this week. Uh, sorry, Mitch. Uh, but now we get the good guys, the real heroes, the Protestant show on Friday night. Uh, so we, we're, we're going to be coming in and giving the Protestant side of things. Why, why do we think Protestantism is true? So, yeah, uh, with that said, have a great week, everyone. And yeah, uh, 
take care. God bless. God bless. All right.